Um, I'm Chuck Davis, and I'm one of the pastors from uh, in the South Austin campus, and uh, I oversee the ministries of pastoral care, as well as uh, work with our senior adults, and I just wanted to begin this morning by mentioning to you that one of your very own, Mr. Jim Harris over here, is going to be addressing our senior adults this week with respect to elder fraud, and uh, all of you are welcome. Um, I, I told you the last time I was here, people don't acknowledge that they're senior adults, uh, at least until they're 75, 80, some never admit it, um, but we technically kind of add 55 and above, so if you qualify and you meet the, that, that general dynamic there, uh, you're, you're more than welcome to register online so we know how much food to prepare and, and uh, bring you to campus and our South Austin campus and share that event with you. Um, many years ago, I, when I started ministry uh, as a youth pastor, I, was, uh, I had the joy of uh, finding a series that, that taught about the prodigal son. It had 12 lessons, 12 weeks I spent with my teenagers talking about the prodigal son. We shoved it into two weeks. And I, I just want you to know there's a lot in there, way beyond what Pastor Key may have shared with you last week and, and what I'm going to share with you this morning. Uh, but hopefully you'll discover that in, in, the, in the terms of uh, God's word, it is a, a rich minefield to, to, to mine. It's, it's deep. And there's so much good stuff there. Uh, I was reminded as I did that study, um, Matt told me I need to have more facial hair to, to keep the microphone in place. And so if you see me every once in a while, just kind of dip this down. It's because I shaved very well this morning. Um, the real prodigal in the story is not at first what we think it is. There's two kinds of prodigals, really. And, and what we find is that the prodigal of, of the self-righteous son who kind of stood outside and observed everything had his issues. And uh, it's much more dangerous, really, than the one who just kind of wastes life and throws it away and, and runs off to the far country only to discover the emptiness of life apart from the Father and to return. I, I'd like to kind of give you a little background. As one of my favorite uh, newsmen said in, in years past, uh, I want you to get the rest of the story, okay? And the rest of the story is this. When Jesus first comes onto the scene, before he comes on the scene actually, John the Baptist is, is proclaiming repentance and baptism as the way for people to come to know Jesus and, and by the, to get their hearts right with God. And, and people started coming out of the woodwork, sinners of all kinds, people whose lives were wasted and ruined and, and probably fit that identification of that first prodigal that was shared with you last week. But uh, as, as they came, there was a group that specifically had some issues with them. You see, their, their, their church mentality of the Pharisees was that of, uh, you, you guys don't really belong. In fact, you have, to, you have to meet all of our criteria to show up. And, and this was not God's intention at all. And Jesus speaks this parable to, to kind of outline and, and address them in where they're standing and to help them to understand that they are just as prodigal as the ones who were coming to be baptized and were repenting of their sins. 
The church has always, always, always had a problem at large. History resounds with it, and, and it becomes the sounding board for many, many non-believers to point back at history and to show us how horrid Christians could be at times. Uh, my first church out of college, where I served as a youth pastor, um, and no, I'm not interested in the job, okay? <laughs> I, I've had my tour of duty on that one. Um, there was... There was a reminder of, of this kind of prodigal to me, even as I was teaching those lessons. I had uh, about 100 young people in my youth group in, in Upper Ohio, and I uh, had decided to, to start a basketball league. And in that basketball league, I asked my kids to have no more than two kids on the team. They had to get the rest of their team from their friends and people outside the church. Uh, this was a means of reaching out and expanding our, our influence, but uh, the influence of the gospel and, and having the opportunity to share Jesus with kids who didn't know him. And, and so every Saturday morning, we'd have 15 teams of kids gathered together, and, and they would have their basketball games, and somewhere in the middle, we'd have someone from Fellowship of Christian Athletes or some local team come and share their testimony and uh, share the gospel with them. And this became uh, a, just a great tool that God used uh, to, to reach many young people uh, until I had a uh, situation where the pastor called me into his office and he looked at me and he said, we've got a problem. I said, oh, what's, what's that? He says, it's the Myers boys. And I said, yeah, isn't that great? I said, they've never been in church before, and they're coming to our basketball league, and, and they're, they're, they just are, are responding to the gospel, and I could see it in, in their hearts, and I think pretty soon they're going to just put their trust in Jesus. And he said, that's a problem. I'm, okay. What do you mean that's a problem? He says, they have long hair. And in my heart and in my mind, that moment in that office, I can see it today, I, my heart just wanted to shout out to him, and you want that to keep them from Jesus? But we're forever putting rules and laws and, and pictures of what we think a Christian is upon everyone who enters our doors. And, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's a worse kind of prodigal because we turn out not entering into the heart of Jesus of what he wants us to be about. And this prodigal story was told by Jesus in the presence of the Pharisees to help them see this mirrored picture of themselves. And there were certain things about them that it just left everything outside of, of the heart of God in, in what they did. They were rule keepers, and they had their list of rules. And this morning as we open this text, I, I want to acknowledge to you that there are times in my life where I have entered into that way of thinking. And, and my sense is that many of you too have, have been there. It's kind of like when we've known Jesus for 25, 30, 40 years, 50 years, some of us, we, we kind of look at somebody brand new to faith and we expect them to be maturity-wise where we may be. And, and part of that is we don't recognize our own immaturity. But we are 
constantly expecting people to be further along in their faith living decisions than they are, and we don't have the patience to work with them. We just think that if we just pour into them all these sermons and all this knowledge that somehow it will automatically happen. Uh, Because I'm in pastoral care, I get to work with a lot of counseling situations and a lot of people who have been in churches for decades. And uh, I see them struggle spiritually just as a few weeks ago we, we talked about the different soils and and the different lives and life problems that come our way and how they affect us and how they can derail us and how they can get us off track, as it were. And, and yet, when we look at life itself, we don't give people that opportunity to grow through those things. We prescribe for them how we want them to behave, how we want them to, to be instructive through that event. Um. I'd like to read with for you Luke chapter 15, and we're going to read just verses 11 and 12 and then skip down to verse 25 because this deals with the older son who represents the Pharisees that Jesus was really a, in, in, the, in the focus of this parable for us. Beginning in verse 13. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them, down to verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother and your father, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound." But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, take your word, and by your spirit, seal it to our hearts. And help us to recognize, Lord, the prodigal within ourselves. And help us to recognize that only that it's there, but that, Lord, there are ways to come back and to enter in fully to the joy that you have set before him in a banquet. Lord, we look forward to the day when we, we together with many, many people of all nations and tribes, gather together in your presence Acknowledging that you are the one who has saved sinners. And we enjoy that banquet eternally with you. But help our hearts today to enter into this moment and enter into your joy in one that has been found in Jesus' name. Amen. You see, his, he had worked hard, but it had all been out of duty. 
when, when you read those first two verses, verse 11 and verse 12, you quickly realize that the father divested himself of all that he had and divided it. So the older son got as much as the younger son, right? And, and in his mind, it was what his younger brother did with it. I've seen this over and over again when I pastored in South Dakota many years ago before coming to Austin. And a, a rancher would decide that he was going to finally retire from the farm and move into the town. And uh, he split up his land between his sons and, and divested himself of, of the responsibility and the oversight of the crops that would be produced or the cattle that would be cared for. And, and as he would do that, he'd occasionally go out and enter in and help out, but he, he was not really invested in the outcomes. He had left that now to his sons. And he had stepped back and allowed them to respond in, in caring for what he had cared for for many years, and in some cases, generations. The one son, <laughs> well, you know, it didn't mean anything to him. He divested himself of what he was given and, and went and wasted it all. But the other son, he was the good kid. You know, the older son. Uh, I won't ask any of you who is the older child in the room, but you know what it's like, right? You're expected to set the standard. You're expected to, well, be the good one. I, I did a lot of chuckles out there. I was the oldest son in my family. I had two younger brothers. Uh, both of them um, have played the prodigal for most of their lives. Still do to this day. Uh, there's no turning them to faith, it seems. Our prayers constantly being given on their behalf. My sister and I followed Jesus. Kept in the church. Both of us have worked in the church me for over 50 years. And, and there's a, a certain sense that comes when you've known Jesus for that long and you've, you've gone through life's tests and trials and, and faith has been deepened because of that because you know the power of the presence of God and his spirit in your life. And yet you come and, and you tend to take a, a, a mindset as you look at those who have gone a different direction and run from God is to kind of look down your nose a little bit at them. There was a period of time I would be frustrated with my brothers. I would, my dad, bless his heart, was always trying to get them to go to church, even though they would just you know, put their feet down and dig in deeper and tell him all the reasons why not and, and tell him how foolish he was. And uh, it just, there's always been this dynamic of tension. And I know none of your families have ever felt that, so... I can go ahead and talk about that here a little bit. But being the older son, I felt duty-bound to, to do what was right, to follow Jesus, and, and, and to just stick, stick to it. There came a time in my life where I looked at it and said, it's the only reason I'm doing this because I want to please my father. I'm not talking about my heavenly father. I'm talking about my earthly father. And I had to face up to the truth that no, it wasn't about my dad. It was about what Jesus had done for me. And that's why I was where I was. 
earthly fathers can disappoint us. I know I've disappointed my kids at times, but my heavenly father, (laughs) he's faithful. Through every storm, through every trial, through every difficult moment in our lives. We find here that this prodigal who had it seemingly all together, but is really the prodigal, had, had an agenda. There were certain things about him that were signs of this being a prodigal in his self-righteousness. And I, I want to point those out for you because you may see it kind of reflected in your own life. The first one is this, a relationship based on performance. As long as I'm doing everything God wants, what I think God wants me to do, and I have his pleasure. But I forget that even while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. He didn't wait for me to get my entire act cleaned up and to have the certification of the local congregation as to how well I had done. I didn't go through Navigators 2-7, which I did. I didn't go through Bible Memory with Youth for Christ, which I did. I didn't get all those qualifications, much like Paul. I didn't stand there. I had all these credentials that could have said, you're, you're worth something. But like Paul, I had to look at it at some point and say, this isn't worth anything. <laughs> uh, he had a better word for it, but uh, we'll, we'll preserve that on another day, not on a Sunday morning service, okay? There's, there's just the sense that it, it, it doesn't amount to anything. Because it's not what I do, it's what he's done that makes the difference. It's what Jesus has done when he looked at me and he saw me a sinner in need of of him. Jesus came and he died for my sins. He made the pathway to God for me. It was nothing of my own doing. I couldn't earn it no matter what I did in life. But the Pharisees were still caught in this performance trap. Wanting to do, just do, just do, and keep on adding to the list of do's. Till somehow they figured God would at least see the balances were were in God's favor. And they could earn heaven thereby. The second thing that you see as a sign of this young man, if you look at verses 29 and 30, is that He had what they call log and eye disease. You remember that one? (laughs) That's where he could look at somebody else and, boy, whatever sin they had, it was was out of of sync. I mean, it was beyond sight, right? It was huge. I could see all the the filth, all the sin that that has just captured your attention, but I cannot see anything in mine because mine is so small and it just doesn't really matter. There are times in my life where I've looked at people that way. There's times I've looked at my brothers that way. And God has to bring me back and help me identify what's going on in my own heart. Because I need to see and understand my need of the Savior is continual. It's not just an episode in the past. It's a present reality. There's a third thing that he gives, we can see in this attitude of this young man as, as he looks there and he, he just, in, in verse 20 he says, but on, 
excuse me, I turned my page on here and I was just about ready to give you something totally different. He said, but when the son of yours came home, he has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fatted calf for him. Sense a little jealousy there? A little resentment? A kind of like, I didn't get what I deserved? It's this comparison with others. It's when we see someone else have the blessing of God on their life and God seems to withhold it from us for some reason to to train us and, and to help us grow in our faith. We don't get the same benefits. And rather than rejoicing in God's blessings in someone else, all we can see is the fact that we didn't get what we wanted and what we thought we deserved. I found myself in that position too. Some years ago, I know most of you know my, my story, but uh, when my first wife died at age 38 and I had three boys uh, left in my care, my, my, I, I remember one day walking into the worship center of the church that I was pastoring at the time and saying to God, God, I didn't deserve this. This isn't right. This isn't fair. I said, I've served you all. It's almost exactly what the prodigal, the self-righteous prodigal was saying here. Lord, I, I did this for you. I did that for you. I served here. I served there. I helped these kids. I helped that kid. I helped that guy with his family and his marriage. And I, and I could list out all the criteria of all the things I had done. But what I was seeking was that, God, you owe me one. In this moment, you owe me. And it was hard when I finally heard those words coming out of my mouth to recognize where my heart was at. And I had to take a step back and I had to say, God, (laughs) you know, life isn't fair. But in the words that was shared in a sermon here just recently, who else do I go to? You have the words of life. Where else can I turn? And it was hard for me to see and to recognize that my motivation for doing what I was doing was suddenly exposed. It was to win his favor. And I had gotten into that comparison game with brothers and sisters and other pastors and other people in my family. I had become the self-righteous prodigal. And yet there was one more. It kind of overrides all of 29 and 30, verses 30. It's it's this whole sense of (laughs) self-deception. We can't see our own hearts It's not evident to us where we are at. But we find ourselves in those moments. We find ourselves in those places in life that just shout back to us and tell us, hey, look, uh, you're a prodigal. If I cannot come into the presence of Jesus and acknowledge my pride and my sin, I can never know the joy of repentance and healing. And the freedom that only that can bring to a heart. 
And the chance is that the older I get in my faith, I am more prone to falling into that pit. And the more careful, the more watchful I need to be. There is a way home for this young man. You know, just, just like the prodigal who went away and wasted everything, this prodigal who stayed at home and, and did what was right and took care of things and, and stood there to the side judging what had happened and, and the return of his, of his brother, there, there's this, this sense in, in which he, he had the same opportunity. The father came out to him. The father didn't sit in there at the banquet and just say, well, maybe your brother will come in sooner or later. I hope he will. No, he went out. He entreated him. He begged him. He desired that he, in that moment, come back to the father and rejoice in the same sense. The father could rejoice that that one who was dead is now alive. The one who was lost is now found. There's a way home. The father says in verse 31, Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. Two things. I recognize, I recall that my father has promised of his presence is always with me. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me no matter where I go, no matter where I am. As a chaplain, I was taught that it wasn't necessarily my story that would change people's lives or that would allow people to find healing. It was me bringing the presence of Jesus in that traumatic moment for them in an ER or an ICU and allowing them to see Jesus because he alone can heal the deep parts of our hearts. He alone healed me. Recalling his presence. Receive the Father's provision. All I have is yours. <laughs> I mean, he was living on the ranch and he had everything, access to everything. Everything was literally his. God, our Father, has said to us, all that I have is yours. <laughs> everything. Ask and it shall be given. The opportunity to know that my God who provides all my needs according to his riches and glory will not be chintzy when it comes to my heart. He will always, always, always give out of the abundance of who he is that I may know the fullness of his presence and the fullness of his provision in my life. And the invitation was given. Come in. Come to the table and joy. <laughs> Enter into the joy that your brother has returned. And the story leaves us hanging out there because it doesn't tell us whether this prodigal is ever going to go in and join the banquet. The truth of the story that Jesus told was to set in the hearts of everyone who is a part of his family this truth. If you cannot enter into the joy of new birth, if you cannot enter into the joy of new life, if you cannot enter into the joy of what, being, what is lost being found, you've missed the purpose of being. We are a church that is a hospital. 
We are here for the hurting. We are here for the broken. We are here for the lost. And if all we could do in our mature Christianity is stand apart and judge someone else for where they're not, we've missed the point. Because all of us were there at one time. Whether in the pride of the older son or in, in the licentiousness of the younger son. Makes no difference. We've all needed Jesus. And we wouldn't be here today if we didn't. And the truth of the matter is that every day we need his presence. We need to rejoice in the Father's all-forgiving love. I've lived this truth, this story, very vividly the last two weeks. Uh, when I remarried, I ent- uh, we, my family became a blended family of six kids, and we added, as my wife calls it, a bonus blessing. I, I call it a surprise, because it was to me. Um, and she just, I have, uh, of the seven children that we have, we have one son that um, was especially close to his mother. And when she died, he entered, he entered into a period of rebellion. And to this day, he's in the clutches off and on of alcoholism. It's not a pretty picture. I've seen him come a huge, huge way back to Jesus in the last year. Make some immense strides. But in the last two weeks, he had to fall back into his alcoholism. And we've lived it. He loves Jesus. Just uh, a week and a half ago, I heard him for the first time since he was a teenager over the phone tell me in tears how absolutely overwhelmed he was with the mercy and the grace of God toward him. That God could love him in spite of all he'd been through and all the choices he had made. I had a, um, a song that he, he wrote and uh, produced. He's an excellent musician. My heart always goes back to a day where, <clears throat> where he stood and, and sang uh, the song I could only imagine as, as only he could sing it. And the song that he wrote goes like this. When you don't know where to look, when you don't know what to say, when you don't know where to turn for comfort and it gets harder every day, There's footprints in the sand. You're with me always. You carry me through desert lands to a holy place. Lord, you lift me up. You 
you wake me every day. There's nothing like your mercy. There's nothing like your grace. Thunderclaps and lightning, behold the Lamb of God, the Prince of Peace, eternal, the writer of all wrongs. Elohim and Adonai, keeper of your word, you make my heart new every day. My prayers have been heard. Lost and prodigal, living life my way. I'll leave the garden on my own. What a foolish thing to say. But I'm coming back. I'm running down the road. His arms are held wide open. He wraps me in his robe. His journey is not mine. His struggle is not mine. And how dare I, how dare I stand and look at him and not enter into the joy that the Father has to receive him and to work in him and to heal him and he will fully one day. This is the church. That's why we're here. Where people struggle, we struggle with them. We enter in with them. We love them and we bring them to Jesus. Don't be the prodigal that stands to the side and points the finger. Enter into the joy of the Father at every broken, at every person who needs healing, at everyone that enters the gates of these doors. And step in with him and let Jesus do his work. He's not done yet. He isn't finished with you yet either. And he'll continue that work till it's done. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you know my heart this morning. And you know where each heart is that sits in these chairs. We long for healing. We long for hope. We long for peace that only you can give. And every struggle, every trial we have this side of glory is but a reminder of who we are and our absolute need for you. You are enough. You are always there. And all you have is ours. Oh God, we speak the name of Jesus as that song said. We speak it over our families. We speak it over our very lives because we know we need your presence. We need your healing. We need your touch. May we find in you, in this moment, a clearer image of ourselves that we may better serve you and to those that need you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.